0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: This is the conversation hour with Jonathan
2: Kendall.
1: And that's exactly what we're talking about today freedom and how much we'll get for being vaccinated. For a long time, Uh, We've been told that COVID-19 vaccines are our best shot at getting back to some sort of normal in Australia. But as we've seen in the past year, it's not really that simple. We need to have access to enough Pfizer shots and people need to be comfortable getting our vaccination, which has provided a challenge for health authorities. For example, I mean, how do you convince someone to get vaccinated? Do you look at celebrity endorsements, incentives or maybe more freedoms? And I'm asking because industry leaders are meeting with the Federal Treasurer and head of the COVID-19 Vaccinations Task Force in Canberra today to discuss what those extra freedoms could look like. From last month, countries in the European Union opened quarantine-free travel to people who are fully immunised against COVID-19, something that they will prove using a digital vaccine passport. But where else could these digital vaccine passports be used? Sporting, arts, or cultural events, maybe restaurants, uh, hospitals, and health facilities. What about public transport? Just kind of having to verify before you hop on public transport that you have been vaccinated. So, my question for you today is should we be giving vaccinated people more freedoms? This is the conversation hour. with Jonathan Kendall.
2: The Brazilian vaccination rate at present is 13.1% and the Australian is 7.3%. Um, the Sao Paulo Grand Prix takes place uh, in early November. So it's going to take place just ahead of the one in Melbourne. Uh, Brazil, as we all know, has a far more important and critical uh, situation with respect to COVID. Australia's done incredibly well. Melbourne's done incredibly well as well. So I don't understand why we don't have the capacity to manage this. Now, with at least we've got a timetable for vaccination rollouts.
1: That's Martine Letts, the CEO of the Committee for Melbourne, talking about that decision yesterday to cancel the Grand Prix and the MotoGP on Phillip Island as well. Some pretty big decisions being made in the past 24 hours. Let's have a chat with Felicia Mariani about that. She's the CEO at the Victorian Tourism Industry Council. Good morning.
3: Good morning, Jono. How are you?
1: I'm all right. Do you think maybe big events like the Grand Prix and the MotoGP on Phillip Island wouldn't have to be cancelled if we had uh, people vaccinated and and, uh, a digital vaccine passport system up and running?
3: Well, I think that's pretty well undoubtedly the case. I mean, you only have to look at what's happening overseas. They've got, um, you know, they've got crowds at Wimbledon. They've had crowds at um, UEFA matches. There are crowds at... um, Baseball matches and basketball matches in, in the United States, and and largely because they have significant proportions of their population now vaccinated, and many of them are in fact using that as a as an encouragement, if you will, to get more people vaccinated because they are providing liberties to people that um, you know open things up, open possibilities up for them if they can um, show proof of vaccination.
1: What does it mean for the Victorian tourism industry to have those two events, the MotoGP on Phillip Mm -hmm. Island and the the Grand Prix cancelled?
3: Yeah, look, that was a... It was a very devastating blow yesterday, I have to admit. And, and when you think about an industry that has really been hammered over the past, you know, we're coming up on 18 months now, that we've been dealing with rolling lockdown shutdowns. You know, in particular, Melbourne and Victoria has been, you know, really hard hit, as we know, because we've suffered more lockdowns and longer lockdowns than any other destination here in Australia. And to have these two pinnacle events on our major event calendar, both pulled at the same time on the same day. Um, it was pretty gut-wrenching, I have to say.
1: Yeah, fair enough. So what happens now? I mean, what are you focused on now?
3: Well, you know, what we have focused on now is really pushing to make sure that we get that event back in 2022. I mean, we've talked about the fact that it looks like from the discussions yesterday that we're proposing an April um, conduct of the event rather than the first position in March that we've had previously. Um, but we just need to make sure that we are pulling out all stops to um, secure or re-secure, whatever we want to call it, that event to make sure that we don't miss out on another year. You know, these these consistent blows of cancelling events do damage to our global reputation. Melbourne has the reputation as the major event capital of Australia. The last 12 to 18 months has really seen that get knocked about. Um, We've seen event after event have to cancel. And we now need to make sure that we put everything we have into securing and and getting that that mantle back. And, And first and foremost is to ensure that we put on... We need to make sure we put on a tennis... In in January, we cannot afford to lose, um, you know, again, what is another pinnacle event for us in the Australian Open. And then we need to make sure that we get that, um, that April event back for the Grand Prix as well.
1: Can you see a situation in Australia where you need to whip out a smartphone or, you know, a paper medical certificate or whatever that might be to get access to hospitals, to get access to cafes, restaurants, sporting events, music events, theatre, culture events, things like that. Is that what you're imagining?
3: Well, I don't know that I would include hospitals in that, I have to say. I mean, hospitals are something. I think we have to be realistic. People have to have access to hospitals. So I'm not sure that I would count um, hospitals in any of that list at all because that's something every citizen needs to have access to when they need it. Um, but when it comes to some of these discretionary activities that you've outlined, again, you know you can look to overseas and see how that's happening and and um, you know we know that in in New York, for instance, entertainers actually have the right to determine if they want to perform in front of only vaccinated people. And I think um, one of the newspapers actually profiled the fact that Bruce Springsteen actually designated which vaccines he would allow into his concert. So he was only allowing people who were vaccinated with Pfizer and Moderna to attend his concert. So, you know, those are pretty drastic steps. I'm not advocating that's the kind of level that we would want to go to. But I think the point here is, We need to look at everything that is happening in every place around the world where they are doing this better than we are. And at the moment, that's most countries because we're pretty well at the bottom of the heap as as far as OECD nations and our rates of vaccination. We're in a pretty poor position. So let's look at what is working overseas. Let's look at how other places have achieved um, the the 50, 60, 70% of their populations being vaccinated. And let's Australianize some of those ideas and employ them here to get our people out there, to get them vaccinated, But most importantly, we've got to get the supply.
1: Yeah, yeah. and just before we let you go, um, speaking of ideas, industry leaders are meeting with the Federal Mm -hmm. Treasurer and head of the COVID-19 Vaccinations Task Force in Canberra today and they're hashing out some ideas around what might happen once we get a better supply, particularly Mm -hmm. of Pfizer and Moderna uh, Mm -hmm. vaccinations. So on interstate travel and overseas travel, is the Federal Government happy to continue to kind of disallow interstate and overseas travel because if vaccinated people were allowed greater travel and other freedoms, then there'd be this big rush on vaccinations, but we just don't have the supply of, of those vaccines preferred for under sixties yet?
3: Yeah, that's that's correct. And I mean I guess this is the interesting point, you know, these conversations with business, they should have started months and months ago. Businesses, private enterprise are right behind government in trying to get this to happen because we all have a vested interest in making sure that this country stays open. So I know that business leaders across this country have been really keen. I mean, look at Qantas and Virgin. They kind of leapt out and did some stuff in their own right, offering free trips and and, um, frequent flyer points for people who, you know, got vaccinated and, and flew with them. So, you know, business has been poised and ready to help. It's just a bit of a shame that we're only just having these conversations now because they could have helped in a very big way to encourage greater take-up. But as you say, the key issue here has been the supply. There is, you know, it's 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 really challenging to start creating demand if we don't have the supply to satisfy that demand, and that's really where we've been. So getting these ducks in a row to make sure that when we get, you know, and an, a ramped-up access to Pfizer and Moderna vaccines, that we've got plans in place to get that rolled out quickly and to get those vaccines in the arms of everybody who's willing to do so.
1: And Felicia Mariani, thank you so much for having a chat.
3: Thanks, Jono. Thanks so much for the chance to talk with you.
1: No worries. That's a CEO at the Victorian Tourism Industry Council talking about what she would like to see happen when it comes to digital vaccine passports. And I guess there would have to be some allowance made for just... Hard copies, paper vaccine passports, as well, because not everyone has smartphones that they can use. Uh, Manesh is in Mulgrave. Good morning. What are your thoughts on all this?
4: Hey, morning, um, John. How are you? Uh, look, um, I am uh, fully, fully supporting the vaccination program. In fact, waiting for my second jab of AstraZeneca. Actually, um, so, so having said that, uh, you know, I, I think that people will do extreme things for freedom so that's a great idea to associate freedom with vaccination Uh, however i I think somebody is probably going to look closely at the ramifications of of not giving freedom to people who aren't vaccinated uh, from the point of view of it being perhaps not constitutional or even illegal
1: so you think maybe what anti-vaxxers might look at this and kind of use it as ammunition is that what you're saying
4: i 'm um, not saying that i 'm just thinking that probably the leaders and the political leaders and the, uh, and the people who are making these decisions will probably need to look at the legal ramifications of of not giving certain freedoms to people who haven 't been vaccinated
1: yeah freedom to travel et etc cetera, etc cetera. we 're going to have a chat uh, later this hour with an expert on human rights law maria o 'Sullivan from the Castron Centre for Human Rights Law at Monash University. Look, thank you so much for your call, Manish. Uh, Rob is in Caulfield North. G'day, Rob. What are you thinking?
5: Hi, Jonathan. Um, So I think the key word here um, that everyone is like circling around is incentive. People don't have enough incentive to get the job, and it's like a catch-22. They don't have enough incentive because borders are closed, and borders are closed because people are not getting vaccinated. And I tried to approach George Feinberg uh, two months ago also on Twitter and other uh, channels and tried to say, look, the government needs to open, to, to say that the borders would open once um, an X percent of population is vaccinated and only for vaccinated people. So that's, going overseas. And the other aspect, of course, and that's I think what is going to discuss today with business leaders in Canberra, is open things domestically. Because mm. when you think about it, when people get a job today, they just don't get anything out of it. Yes, they are immune in some part to COVID, but they can't do much. If there is lockdown, they are locked down like everyone else.
1: And I've heard some criticism of of lockdowns, robbers them being quite a blunt instrument. They don't necessarily allow for people who have been vaccinated to travel, you know, interstate, as as is the case in some other countries. Thank you for your call on the text line. Um, this text, and I, I get this, but it says it's a bit unfair to those who want to be vaccinated but can't yet. So I mean, there is a problem with supply for uh, Pfizer at the moment, Pfizer vaccines. And this Jane from Box Hill making a similar point, just unfair to have liberties to those vaccinated when there's still significant access to vaccine. Um, Also, this one says, the risk involved with large events like the Grand Prix isn't necessarily because of crowds, it's because of all the travel for the event. Drivers and support crew were a substantial contributor to our influx of COVID. Uh, thank you for your text. This one just says, Jonathan, if the Pfizer vaccine was made available to all age groups, the demand would substantially increase, which would have flow-on effects. So thank you for your text. Dr. Norman Swan is the host of RN's Health Report and co-host of CoronaCast. He's also got a new book out. It's called So You Think You Know What's Good For You. Good morning, Dr. Norman Swan. Hi, John. Should we be giving more freedoms to people who are vaccinated?
6: Um- the answer to that is yes. I actually think, the just going on the last call in terms of incentives, the, um, the, the demand outstrips the supply right now. So we actually don't need incentives at the moment. What we need is supply. And if you had enough supply out there for Pfizer, the queues would be around the corner. Um, you might reach a plateau, but that plateau would take a, ti- a while to get there. And that they've seen a plateau in Israel and they've seen a plateau in Britain and they've seen a plateau in the United States, high vaccination areas. Um, so all you need at the moment, the incentive would be we're open for business with Pfizer and the under 60s would be sneaking round the corner, I can tell you. Mm. Um, then there's a group of people who are hesitant. But my, I, I actually think that the truly hes- the truly resistant to getting vaccinated in Australia is four or five percent of the population. Uh, I've done an interview for tomorrow night seven thirty with uh, Professor Christina Pagel uh, um, from Britain, who is professor of operational research, public health at University College London, and on the independent, epidemic uh, advisory committee for the British government. And she reckons, and and Britain's not too different from us. They've got Astra for the over 40s and Pfizer for the under 40s. What's different from Britain is they they were actually good at procurement. We've been terrible at procurement and they've got plenty of supply. Um, But given that mix of vaccines, she reckons it's 90% that we've got to get to. So almost every Australian, but that's 12 years and above to get to that point. So the incentive, there's no incentive required now, just get Pfizer out there and then for the resistant, you might need incentives. But I think the incentive is, and I just don't know why they don't do it, is that they just say, on if they're absolutely confident in the supply, and I suspect they're not, actually. I think the truth of the matter is they're still not confident in the supply because they say Q4, that's the end of the year. But is it the beginning of October or is it the beginning of December that that starts to arrive? That's a very big difference and it's getting very late with an indigestible amount of Pfizer coming in. Their task at the moment is to get that 20 million doses in now, not at the end of the year. But to say, 31st of January, our borders are open. And let me tell you, the queues for the vaccine, again, would be round the corner because mm. people will be clamoring to get it because they know they're going to be at risk as soon as borders open up. But borders do have to open up. and we need, But we need special provision for disadvantaged groups, people who don't, don't have English as a first language, who may be truly hesitant because they're getting misinformation through their own back channels. And Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander communities, which i 'm less worried about because they 've got very good community controlled health services Vacho and Victoria is fantastic and um, but disadvantaged groups need to be covered within that and open for bit don 't say certain percentage, say the date and just watch it happen it will It will happen, and we'll be clamoring for vaccine, and we will get to incredibly high levels very quickly, as long as they can get vaccine out to general practitioners, mass vaccination clinics, just, you know, work thing. We're dicking around at the moment, talking about nothing important because we don't have the supply. Got the supply? We'll find ways of doing it.
1: Okay. Not mixing your words this morning, Dr. <laughs> no, I'm just,
6: I'm just angry. that, that you know, It's just... The if we had the supply, Australians would be bearing their arms. We're not a vaccine hesitant country. We, we get ninety five percent of our kids immunized in the first year of life. We we are not like some other countries. We're not like Israel, for example, where the ultra orthodox are very vaccine resistant, and that's a very big percentage of the Israeli population. We're not like we're, we're not like America, where um, a, a significant faction of the Republican Party is vaccine resistant. We're much more like Britain,
1: where we. we want to get immunised. Just give us the vaccine. Mm. And we've also heard this morning that masks will no longer be mandatory indoors for office or factory workers or in schools. So as of as of midnight tomorrow night in Victoria, what do you think of having no masks as an incentive to get people vaccinated? I mean, would that work? Um, I think the, the,
6: the problem is, as one of your previous callers indicated, is, is that when you don't have the vaccine available and you've only got a relatively few people, relatively few people in the population who are vaccinated in a public health sense, it doesn't make that much of an impact. You want a situation. What's going to be much more um, of an incentive for some people anyway is that, you know, you want to book your trip to the Gold Coast. If you've got two doses of Astra or Pfizer on board, you can get to the Gold Coast, regardless of whether borders are open. If you could get states to agree to that so that on an individual basis, you're much more protected, not entirely, but much more protected, then that would be a huge incentive for people to, to, to do it on an individual basis. Masks are... Um, so the situation with masks is that when there's very little virus circulating in the community... Uh, you can get rid of masks but masks may come back when we open our borders where we say we're going to open our borders and the trade-off for that actually is going to be masks on public transport in mass indoor events and so on for a while to help control it. That's what they're doing in Singapore. They haven't got rid of everything else. They're saying we're opening up, we're stopping looking at cases, we're going to look at hospitalizations as a key data point, exactly what the chief medical officer here said the other day. That's where Singapore... Singapore is at our stage two and three, which we haven't even been given a date for in 2022. Singapore is there right now. Mm. And, um, but they're not giving up on the other, on the other measures, such as masks in public play in crowded public places.
1: Yeah. Well, so that's the question today we're asking is, would you be supportive of a digital vaccine passport if it meant you were able to participate in more activities during the pandemic, more freedom to travel, eat out and attend events? Stephen has an interesting perspective. Just, on just this.
6: before we go to Stephen, John,
1: yeah, we, yeah, yeah. we already have a vaccine
6: passport in Australia. Yes, it's called yeah. My Health Record. Your vaccine uh, status is recorded in there and it, it's there and you can print it off. So we mm. already have a vaccine passport in Australia.
1: Yeah. I guess the the uh, follow-up question to that is how much should we be using that to allow people into restaurants and cinemas or whatever? But um, uh, Stephen has an interesting point here because he's, he's from Tarelga and He's been told that he cannot be vaccinated. Uh, for medical reasons. He's had a a chondrosarcoma uh, and he's had throat surgery for his cancer. Good morning, Stephen. Good morning. So what exactly has your doctor told you? Well,
7: I've actually got to go back in for surgery next Monday and um, they they asked me if I'd had my flu shot and I said yes and uh, and they said, "Uh, have you had a COVID shot? And I said no. I said, "Thank God for that, because it would have compromised your surgery." Now, uh, it, I, I've had other uh, unexplained illnesses uh, where I've, uh, for eighteen months, I, I actually sweated blood at the night time. Uh, my hair got discoloration in it, and fingernails, and no one could explain it. So. Uh, I've also
1: been told that uh, you know, I'm an immune compromise. So. so it sounds like a pretty tough situation to be in, Stephen. Um, Dr Norman Swan, what happens for people like Stephen who have been told that they can't get vaccinated for medical reasons? Well, I obviously can't comment
6: on Stephen's individual case, but I've got no idea what the scientific basis is for that for that advice. Um, It could be that Stevens had unusual clotting problems or bleeding problems where they're worried about Astra. But in fact, if you were in France, you'd be getting three doses of Pfizer um, in that sort of situation. So I'm really not sure what the scientific basis is of that advice. Um, People with cancer, people who are immunocompromised, the, the, the conversation scientifically internationally is not no vaccine. It's actually how many doses you need. And the current discussion is three doses of Pfizer, or if you've had two doses of Astra, a Pfizer booster. In other words, to get your immune system as strong as it possibly can be. Maybe they're worried that you know, prior to surgery, you don't want you getting a sort of a flu-like illness and being a bit sick where they don't know what's going on with you. That's a reason for not getting it. But I, I would love to know what the scientific basis is of that, uh, of that advice, because
1: that's not borne out in the international literature. Maybe something to follow up with your Dr. Stephen. Thank you very much for having a chat with us. And I guess the the follow on question from that, Dr. Norman Swan, is if we do bring in this system where uh, where you need to show your digital vaccine passport, or as you're saying, you know your your, um, your Medicare or your MyGov app on your phone to get into certain venues. Surely there'd be a workaround for people like Stephen. I mean, he would have he would have an exemption yeah, or some of kind course. of medical certificate. would and, and
6: once and once we're very highly vaccinated as a community, individuals like Stephen um, don't have a big impact on anything really, because there'll be there'll be people who are unimmunized in the community, um, we, and we won't ban them fr- fr- from places, but there'll be a period of time where they can't travel. You know, if you want to travel overseas or if there's a, an outbreak of a, the next variant in Queensland and they're letting vaccinated people in and you're not vaccinated, you might not be able to go on your holiday to the Gold Coast. Um, and that's the incentive to get immunised. But if
1: you've got a medical reason not to, then you'll, there will be exemptions. There's no question about that. And you were just running through a few scenarios earlier around, you know, when this potential big shipload or plane load, I guess, or couple of plane loads of Pfizer will arrive, and what impact that will have on what we can and can't do in Australia. But if they do arrive in December, I mean, what does that mean for a big event like the Australian Open?
6: Well, it's it's going to be really hard. We we, remember um, there's twenty five million Australians. We need to be immunising everybody 12 years old and above. And, that's, and they've got to get two doses. That's a lot of people. So we've got to get up to three or 400,000 doses a day if you want to be immunized, the country to be fully immunised by the beginning of next year. And at the moment, we're not even getting to 200,000. And one reason we're not getting to 200,000 is supply. I think be, we would be at 200,000 pretty quickly if we had supply. And then the logistic challenge for Lieutenant General Fruin is... Um, you know having the, all, multiple outlets with everybody, it, you do not need six years of a medical degree or four years of nursing training to stick a needle in somebody 's arm um, a, a lot of people could be could be taught how to do
1: that in a responsible So, I mean, there's way. been suggestions around medical students doing that, et cetera. But um, what about hospitality? So would density limits be exempt or would there be no density limits if you were just saying, look, I'm just opening my restaurant to vaccinated people? Do you think that's fair if they don't have to abide by the you know, the density limits? The The problem is... And this is why you probably can't get
6: the problem is, first of all, we've not paid attention to ventilation well in indoor areas and we should be giving much more solid advice to restaurants, bars and others about how to ventilate their venues so that they're safer and um, People who are immunised can still get infected and can still pass on the infection, probably at a lower level. So it's not entirely open doors with vaccination. And we've got to learn a lot about what happens to the dynamics there. So Singapore, I just keep on coming back to Singapore, while they're changing their stage two and three, there are still um, crowd restrictions and restrictions in indoor venues. They're, They're still wearing masks Um, in multiple places in Singapore. They're not getting rid of that even though they've got high vaccination rates. So I think that completely open slather like they're doing in Britain. Uh, Professor Pagel in my story tomorrow night at 7.30 thinks they're crazy doing what Boris Johnson's doing and she's an advisor to the the UK government. We will still have to have controls in place but travel will be possible. Infection rates will be lower. It'll take us a while to get to 90% but once we're at 90% we probably can go back pretty much to normal, but the variants are what will come to m- mug us in the end. And we just need to be m- much more conscious of that um, because the variants could be um, quite vaccine resistant and therefore you're more likely to pass it on if you're vaccinated. The key with vaccination is that you don't get into hospital, you don't get into ICU, you don't run the risk of dying. And you, um, and so you're much safer as an individual And if 90% of Australians or 95% are in a safe place, that's a good place to be, even if they get a bit of the flu.
1: Mm. and just picking up on what you said there if we do get to the stage where we get a high rate of people in australia who have been vaccinated but then there is this variant which knocks us for six and is um you know capable of being transmitted amongst people who are vaccinated what happens then i mean is it just a case of everyone getting another you know another shot another booster
6: yeah it's it's almost certainly those who have astra will need a booster towards the end of this year um boosters are going to be part of the pattern we've ordered novavax vaccine which is going to be a very good vaccine that could be used as a booster shot novavax is talking the manufacturer is talking about that right now so yes boosters will help and specially designed vaccines like we have for the flu each year to the current variants that are circulating and we need to get vaccine donated to places like indonesia uh, on our borders, uh, low, low to middle income countries who don't have the vaccine, don't have the infrastructure, so they're immunised. So there's less virus circulating there and less chance for new variants to emerge. And let me tell you, we're talking about Delta today. In six or eight weeks' time, we could be talking about Lambda, which is more vaccine resi- possibly more vaccine-resistant, more contagious. These variants are just going to keep on coming. But that's why we've just got to get immunised, fully immunised with whatever vaccine is available, Astra. Pfizer so that we're safe and we can start opening up and, and then think about booster shots a little bit later.
1: Mm. Well look I really appreciate your time and uh, expertise thank you. You're welcome John. Dr Norman Swan the host of RN's health report and co-host of Corona Cast. Jan is in sale. Morning Jan Good morning Jono how are you? Very well what are your thoughts?
2: Um, first off it's lovely to have dr swan on and just a breath of common sense that's just fantastic to hear um i think it's a no-brainer uh, i didn't hesitate getting the vaccine as soon as uh, it became available because i have two events in new zealand and tasmania next year that i desperately want to go to and i uh, it's to me it's just a, an absolute no-brainer you want to travel you've got to be vaccinated but um the other, and the reason why I made contact was the other thing I'm finding a little confusing message-wise is that either I've got four children, all the whole family, the six of us, have had no issue getting vaccinated. Now, four of us had appointments, two were walk-ups in a country immunisation hub. And um, my, the four kids have, uh, three have had Pfizer, one has had um, AstraZeneca.
1: And when and, you say kids, they're—I mean—they're I mean, they're obviously over eighteen. No, no,
2: seventeen through to well,
1: seventeen through to twenty-six. Right, okay. Because my understanding was that um, you know people under eighteen weren't getting the, the vaccinations. So there you go. That's yeah in- interesting, Jan. Thank you. We'll go to Paul in who's also in sale now. Morning, Paul. Hi,
8: John. I I'm good. It's the Grinch here.
1: Oh, yes. Good morning.
8: How are you? Um, No, I was was interested to hear um, Dr Swan's comment about we already have a digital um, passport. Now, going back to 2017, 2018, the government really pushed this MyGov record issue to get people to sign up to it. Now, that was a case of if you signed up to it, all your private medical information was available to anyone in a government department. Centrelink, Medicare, the Taxation Department and Immigration. Now, so much for privacy. The more desks that your information goes across or has access to, the less privacy you have. There are a lot of people that do not, have not registered with the MyGov health record again. Well, there was
1: the option to opt out and I think that's, that's, that's right. Opted out.
8: Yep. That's right. There are a lot of people that opted out um, because of the privacy issue and it was explained to them, well, this is how it's going to work. Now, isn't it ironic that they had that push a few years ago and now we're all talking about digital passports. If you Mm. want to travel overseas, and this has been a contention of mine for years, I mean, I've had passports for over 40 years, why is there not a page in the back of your international passport? When you go to the doctor and have a vaccination, it's in there and that's where it
1: stays. Well, see, not that's, that's not a bad idea, Paul, I reckon, because people love to get stamps in their passport, um, and I think uh, it would make sense to keep all of that information together, have a little page in your passport that, um, that shows what immunisations you've had as well. What do you think? Would you be supportive of a digital vaccine passport if it meant you were able to participate in more activities? more uh, more travelling, more eating out. Should we be giving uh, more freedoms to people who have been vaccinated? And lots of texts on just what we should get for being vaccinated or if indeed we need to get anything out of this. Is the incentive just that you won't get the severe symptoms of COVID. Is that incentive enough or should it be? Uh, This text says, Dear John and Norman, I'm a pharmacy student. I've done immunisation training. Pharmacy students just need to be left out of or just seem to be left out of the conversation. I could do things under supervision. And that's what we were talking about as well. Maybe once more Pfizer um, and Moderna arrive on our shores, maybe people like uh, pharmacy students and medical students and nursing students would be able to administer these inoculations. Um, there's, oh, there's lots of comments on this, uh, just saying, I opted out of my gov, but my vaccination COVID record is there through Medicare. Thank you for that, Jane. And another text here just saying, had my second astro jab despite allergy reaction to the first. However, as someone over 60, that was all I could get. Uh, why no vaccine as this will go on annually? Thank you, Danny Valente is a food writer, a traveller, a cook, and just an all-round legend. Morning, Danny.
0: G'day, day, How's it going?
1: Very well. Do you think cafes, outlets, you know, food uh, outlets, restaurants, should they have a no jab, no food policy?
0: It's a tricky one, isn't it? Um, I, I think your businesses will have to. Well, I think they'll have to make those decisions for themselves. We've seen in some jurisdictions around the world that those kinds of things have been mandated. So I know that in Ireland at the moment, they're only allowed outdoor dining in general at the moment, but they are proposing that when they open indoor dining, hopefully in a few weeks, that you will need to show your EU vaccination passport to be allowed to dine indoors. Um, over in the land of the free, um, in the US, it's a bit, bit of a mishmash. So, some states have actually banned the whole idea of vaccination passports, uh, but some of the more, I suppose, uh, left-leaning states like um, California and New York have got their own vaccination passports, but you can't mandate that. Uh, it's up to the individual business whether or not they mandate that people only vaccinated people are allowed to enter the premises. So... Yeah, I don't know. It's a
1: tricky one. It it does, and there seems to be different approaches around the world and even across Australia as well. But we had a chat with Felicia Mariani from the Victorian Tourism Industry Council earlier, and she was saying that uh, Bruce Springsteen uh, in the US has said, I will only have people at my concerts who are vaccinated with, you know, one certain brand of vaccination. So, I mean, should restaurants have the right to do that? Should they just have the right to be able to say, look, you're only allowed in if you've been vaccinated?
0: Yeah, I think they should because, and I think the reason is that they have the right to protect their workers. Uh, we've been so lucky in Australia to not have much community transmission, but I think in the US, for example, where there's obviously been an absolute you know, COVID disaster and related to illness and death, um, hospitality workers have been disproportionately affected. So I think that, you know, any employer has a duty of care to their employees and I think if that's the way that they decide they can best keep their employees safe, then absolutely, it's totally up to them. You know, just as we see now, you're not obliged to let somebody into your business if they're not wearing a mask. I think um, it's, it should be up to the businesses to decide um, on the basis upon which people enter yeah, their, their private operations.
1: And we're going to have a chat with Maria O'Sullivan in a moment. She's a senior lecturer, the Faculty of Law and and Deputy Director of the Caston Centre for Human Rights at Monash University and just ask her about some of those... Uh, those types of questions so how do you move to that because I know uh, hospitality venues have been a bit critical about having to police these rules about having to keep records of who's in their their uh, venues and also you know telling people to put their masks back on or not dance um, you know not go on the dance floor and etc etc so I guess there'll be a whole lot of relief if that comes in is that what you'd expect?
0: Well, I mean, I think it's important to be make a distinction between some of the loud voices in the hospitality industry that have been critical um, and the vast majority of restaurants who perhaps do find the burden somewhat onerous but are absolutely committed to um, working in line with the health advice that keeps the whole community safe. So, yes, it's um, it's tricky for restaurants to, for example, you know, the Premier's just announced going to um, increase density numbers, so that's that's great, but restaurants are required to have a COVID market to ensure people do check in with their QR codes. That is a burden on restaurants, but I think most people are, wouldn't say happy, but they're prepared to you know, incur those extra costs, staffing costs because they think it's going to keep the community safe. And I suppose if that COVID marshal is then required to look at somebody's um, you know, phone to check that they're vaccinated as well, because that's what the business or the community decides is going to help keep us all safe, then they'll front up and do that as well.
1: And I just mentioned dance floors, but as part of this change that's coming in from midnight tomorrow, dance floors will be allowed with a COVID check-in marshal, but with no more than 50 people can be on the dance floor at any one time, which I think will be music to the ears of some people. Uh, Rosemary is in Rosebuds. Morning, Rosemary.
3: Hello, can you
1: hear me? I can, go ahead.
3: Hi, how are you? Um yeah, I was just actually ringing because my family are all in Ireland and you had a previous caller talking about hospitality in Ireland before and I know that um, they're discussing um, this business of um, making sure that people had a vaccine passport to enter hospitality but the big problem that's causing controversy there and it would be the same problem here is most of the young people who work in hospitality haven't been offered a vaccine yet. So the staff Aren't going to be vaccinated and haven't had the chance to get vaccinated, um, and yet we're saying that to be in a hospitality venue you must be vaccinated. So it's very um, contradictory or ironic, I think, causing right. a lot of a lot of issues there.
1: Well, that's a very valid point, Rosemary. Thank you, Danny. What are you hearing from hospitality venues around getting staff vaccinated?
0: Well i mean hospitality the industry tends to tends to be young so I think the majority of hospitality workers won't have have had an opportunity to get vaccinated and they are frontline workers So, I mean to my mind I think you know just as um, i don't know like public transport workers or um, you know frontline retail workers are able to be vaccinated I think they're a priority group and you know they do have that um, personal contact with people they're handling dirty dishes they're really you know they, they need to talk to people. Um, and I, yeah, I think they should be prioritised in terms of being able to get vaccinated. But at the moment, because they're for the most part in those younger age groups, that hasn't been easy for them.
1: Mm. Hey, Danny, what's for lunch?
0: <laughs> that is a good question. I'm so leaning into elaborate toasted sandwiches at the moment. That seems to be my winter comfort food of choice. So I'm going to see if I've got a couple of different cheeses that I can use to spark up uh, a bit of a toasty.
1: Oh, sounds good. Thank you for your time, Danny Valent, food writer, traveller and cook. Um, lots of texts here suggesting that a no jab, no play style incentive could be brought in. And if you're kind of familiar with that phrase, it's uh, related to childcare and kindergartens. Um, but on the text line, I guess some are feeling that that could risk some human rights, which is the area of expertise for Maria O'Sullivan. She's a senior lecturer at the Faculty of Law and Deputy Director of the Caston Centre for Human Rights Law at Monash University. Good morning.
9: Good morning, John. O.
1: Do you think a system where, uh, which disallows people from getting access to some venues unless they can provide valid proof of... Vaccination. Do you think that impinges on people's human rights?
9: It does, and the problem is that governments um, are strictly speaking amenable to human rights because they sign up to treaties, but businesses are in a slightly different scenario. They they, they're not strictly speaking um, required to adhere to human rights law. What they are required to comply with is disability discrimination law, and that's at the federal and state level. And that is really relevant here because disability discrimination law includes a medical condition. And I know some of your callers have been talking about that. So basically, the argument is: if a restaurant requires you to have a vaccination certificate, you can argue you being discriminated against um, for a medical condition if they don't let you in. Now, discriminational doesn't just apply to everything. So there's a contest about whether it applies to religious um, reasons and conscientious objection. But Hmm. there is a clear, um, clear legal basis for saying that you can't be discriminated against. For a medical condition.
1: What about the human rights of the people in that venue to, you know, to, to live and uh, enjoy a safe and healthy environment? Isn't that a human right as well?
9: Absolutely, and the right to health is very much reflected in um, the international human rights standards that Australia is a party to, and that is in fact why we've had these limitations on our rights, particularly in Melbourne last year, Um, and actually there was case law in the courts in Melbourne last year about the curfew and the stay-at-home directions, and the court basically said those restrictions are... um, are reasonable because of the public health imperative. Now, when you're talking about a workplace, you've got a lot of other different legal regimes because you've got workplace um, relations law about unfair dismissals. We've got occupational health and safety. Um, As I said, strictly speaking, a restaurant or other business doesn't have to comply with the charter that we have in, uh, in Victoria, the Charter of Human Rights but the disability discrimination law is absolutely relevant.
1: Okay, so if someone has a medical reason and they've got an exemption from getting vaccinated, then, then that might allow them to get in. But what if, as you say, people might have a religious objection or just a personal objection to being vaccinated? Would that hold up or does that just have to be tested in court?
9: That would have to be tested. There, what, there is sort of a precedent with the no jab, um, you know, the child vaccinations, which some callers have, have talked about also, uh, and basically a uh, two quite um, discreet Christian groups uh, were given exemptions under that requirement. That exemption has now been removed, but they're very niche Christian um, organisations that don't believe in vaccinations. Most religious, um, you know, mo- most religions don't have a an anti-vaccination platform. Uh, even, I think, Jehovah Witnesses, who obviously um, uh, have a, a, an issue with the, the blood transfusion, Uh, To my mind, they don't have a vaccination platform. The more contentious issue is the conscientious objection one. So that is where I don't believe in vaccinations. And um, the courts don't tend to give precedent to that. They don't say that that's a valid exemption.
1: Okay, so so it's pretty clear. I mean, it seems as if this system could be brought in, that if uh, eventually people who aren't vaccinated and or can't prove that they've been vaccinated will just be left out of certain venues. Yes,
9: and of course, the law doesn't operate in a vacuum, so obviously there's an equity um, argument about the fact that we haven't had a full rollout. Um, but what I would say is that even under discrimination law, the business would have to show that the restriction is reasonable. So, for example, um, in aged care, obviously, you can show that the restriction on entry to only vaccinated people is more reasonable because of the vulnerability of the persons that are at that facility. I Mm. think it would be a lot more difficult with a restaurant um, or other body because, um, you know, you could say, well, there are other ways in which we could protect our workers, by socially distancing, requiring masks,
1: etc. So there's a lot of people who will talk about human rights and say that, you know, maybe their human rights have been compromised. But how many of those people actually will end up in court testing something like this?
9: Well that's the issue. Unless they get crowdfunding or some sort of pro bono support, it's very costly to um, to deal with this in the courts. The other thing is that we have uh, an ombudsman and the ombudsman actually did a report on the tower lockdown last year, which is a very good report, and she made findings that there was a human rights abuse because of the lack of notification. So I guess there would be the um, ability uh, for some of those accountability mechanisms we have in Victoria to do a report on this issue. But yes, you're right, Jonah, it is a very costly um, endeavour to take these matters to the court.
1: So how difficult is it for you know someone or for the government to find a one size fits all solution I mean for those who want the vaccine and those who choose not to have the vaccine
9: Yeah, I think this is why, you know, you remember uh, the Prime Minister did flout the idea of having mandatory vaccination some months ago and then he resolved from that, I think because there was um, some pushback from One Nation and other groups. But, yes, this is why it's terribly difficult for governments to say everyone must be vaccinated. Um, As your other callers have said, they tend to use a a carrot-and-stick approach and say, well, you'll get an incentive, you know, maybe... um, uh, there'll be uh, some sort of in, yeah, incentive to get the vaccination, but it's terribly difficult for a government to mandate that.
1: Very good, Maria. Thank you for having a chat with us. Maria O'Sullivan, Senior Lecturer at the Faculty of Law at the uh, Monash University, talking about when human rights law is her area of expertise. And she said that potentially uh, venues could be found to be are discriminating against some people if, for example, they have medical grounds uh, explaining that they cannot be vaccinated. Lana is in Paran. G'day, Lana.
3: Hi. Look, I'm, I'm a doctor of philosophy, not medicine, and there is a one-size-fits-all solution. We need, the government needs to ramp up uh, rapid testing for all
2: entry into schools, shops, like other countries are doing in America. Um, and then you don't, uh, it solves all those other very complex problems. Clearly, you could still have COVID if you were vaccinated. You could still spread it. Mm. You could
3: falsely duplicate a certificate of vaccination. And all we care about is that people don't have COVID and spread it to other people.
1: Well, I think that's a really good point, Lana, because the vaccination doesn't stop you from getting COVID. It just stops you from getting the severe uh, symptoms from COVID. So thank you for making that point. Danny is in Essendon. Uh, Morning, Danny. What are you thinking?
7: Well, looking at the issue of incentives, as a person who's been vaccinated, double doses, um, I, I want to travel overseas. But really, this is an international Um, That's why it's called a pandemic. And, I mean, it's no good Australia saying, well, we're going to do this up to this point when other countries haven't, and it's no good other countries saying our borders are going open. If Australia doesn't, it really should be a a united uh, worldwide approach to border openings. But from my point of view with Australia, I don't understand... How do you do that, though,
1: Danny? I mean, we can't get everyone to agree on some things in Australia, so how do you get everyone to agree around the world?
7: Oh, you just put me in charge. <laughs> but, uh, uh, without that happening, um, in terms of uh, uh, the Australian border uh, controls, what I cannot understand at all is why I, as an Australian and a dual citizen, cannot leave Australia, because I'm no harm to Australia leaving Australia. It's when I come back that I'm a problem for Australia. So I would say that the incentives ought to be, yeah, sure, you can leave Australia whenever you like. Um, And, you know, when people come back, if they've got uh, fully vaccinated and they test positive before they get on that aeroplane and they test positive when they get off it, they should be able to just walk straight out into the community. And a whole lot of people I know who just think, what's the point of getting vaccinated? Because, you know, at the moment I can't go anywhere anyway. So they don't. And that's why the incentive of opening the borders is going to really get people saying, yes, I want to get vaccinated now because
1: there's a benefit in it. Well, <laughs> that would be a big Sorry, motivator, not just not just for you, Danny, but, yeah, I reckon lots of people would be keen to travel again. It's just something that, uh, yeah, seems a little bit foreign to us now. Thank you. And our last caller this morning will be Don in Trentham. G'day, Don. How are you faring?
7: Yeah, good. Thank you. Very interesting program you have today. I do uh, interstate travel for work, so I go to Western Australia from Victoria and uh, because of the systems that the individual states have in place, it's cost me an awful lot of money. As an example, Victoria has Safe Victoria as an app, and uh, we use the traffic light system. So if I come from a green zone in Western Australia, I've got no trouble coming into Victoria. But Western Australia just blanket closes the border. Hmm. And so that causes me a problem.
1: Well, see, this is, I mean, this is the what people have been saying since the start of the pandemic. Should we have more of a national approach to this instead of just a state-by-state state approach? Thank you, Don. If you have missed any of the conversation this morning, you can, of course, subscribe to the Conversation Hour podcast via the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. And we do love to hear from you on the email, so do drop us a line if you've got questions or comments or suggestions or ideas for about what we should be discussing. Uh, The email address is conversationhour at abc.net.au